Hello, I'm Eugene Chausovsky, a senior Eurasia analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. If we were going to see Iraq collapse, we've had a couple of really good opportunities. The Islamic State invasion is probably the biggest one where we could have seen Iraq fall apart there, and we didn't. The Kurdish referendum was a chance for a long-held splinter region to break away, and it didn't. So there's a resilience to mm-hmm. this country. Welcome to the Stratfall Podcast focused on geopolitics and world affairs from Stratfor.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. Iraq today is no stranger to headlines, conflict, or controversy. Its key role in the Middle East, however, goes back much, much further, in many respects, to the beginning of civilization. In this episode of the Stratfor podcast, Middle East and North Africa analysts Emily Hawthorne and Ryan Boll explore the geopolitics of Iraq, from its early days as a regional power to the complicated challenges it faces today and the handful of critical decisions throughout history that put Iraq on that path. Thanks for joining us. Hello, my name is Emily Hawthorne and I'm a Middle East analyst at Stratfor and I'm here with my colleague Ryan Bull, also a Middle East analyst at Stratfor. And today we're talking about the geopolitics of Iraq. Uh, we're going to start, of course, um, where you always need to start with geopolitics and think a little bit about the geography of Iraq. Um, Iraq is, of course, famous for the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that course through Iraq from the north all the way down to the south. And everyone knows from a past history class that the ancient civilization of Mesopotamia formed between these two rivers. Um, these two rivers are still incredibly important to life in Iraq, to agriculture, um, and to the general life cycle in the country. You also have in Iraq a couple other really key geographic features. You have vast deserts in the west and in the southwest um, that abut the Arabian Peninsula and that flow into Syria. You also have the mountainous and hilly region in the northwest. And that's where the Kurdish minority population in Iraq lives primarily is in that that hilly and mountainous region um, that abuts Turkey and Iran. You also have the marshy plains between the Tigris and Euphrates at the southernmost tip of the country. Um, and that's where these rivers let out into the Persian Gulf. Yeah, and, and all of that geography led up to the very early development of what a lot of historians consider to be the uh, the cradle of civilization, Mesopotamia, the, the Greek word meaning between two rivers. And um, for whatever reason, civilizations around the planet, Pakistan, China, Egypt, developed around these kind of river city experiences. And Mesopotamia was one of the first. And so these geographic advantages all piled up together to create the first city-states. And from the first city-states, we got the first kingdoms, and the first kingdoms turned into the first empires. And for a while there, for a very long while there, uh, Mesopotamia, what became Iraq, was the center of civilization. It's where writing came from. It's where we got things like the bronze technology that then spread throughout the, the east and the west towards Persia and Anatolia. And as long as Mesopotamia had a technological advantage to take uh, the resources of Mesopotamia and turn them into civilizational artifacts, 
It was one of the most powerful places on earth, and it maintained that number one position until more or less it traded away its advantage as it sent that technology towards Anatolia in the west where the Hittites picked up on it and advanced upon it and and created better military technology, and they sent it east towards where the Medes and the Persians did the same thing, and they more or less gave away their advantage. And as the Bronze Age became the Iron Age, what made Mesopotamia's geography uh, creating a very strong civilization, a very uh, uh, flourishing arts and culture center, uh, slipped both to the west and to the east. And that's where Iraq pretty much ended up under the domination of those who were to its west or to its east. Mesopotamia was unable to resist those more powerful, richer, more resource-endowed neighbors that make up what are is today Turkey and Iran. And this is a really key characteristic of Iraq's geopolitics that we still see play out in Iraqi politics today, that Iraq is sandwiched between some of these greater powers and, and is subject to influence from these greater powers. And that's something that will come up time and again as we're talking about the geopolitics of Iraq. As you said, it, it ties into its geography and its history throughout the different ages of Iraqi history. And of course, you mentioned that Iraq and, and Baghdad in particular really developed as this center of culture, mathematics, science. Um, there was a famous house of wisdom, this gigantic library and center of learning. And this house of wisdom was part of what made Baghdad so important during this period of time. Um, Baghdad was also the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate. This was during the time after the development of Islam in the 7th century, where we had the caliphate or the sort of capital of the Islamic world at the time moving between various cities in what we now know as the Middle East. So Baghdad was the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate until a very famous siege of Baghdad in 1258 by Mongol forces at the time that came from the east. And Baghdad's importance really declined at this time. But after that point, after 1258, you see its ownership and its influence really shift um, according to who was stronger around it. And as you already mentioned, Ryan, we have the areas that are now Iran and Turkey. Um, these governments and the civilizations that were active in these areas at the time had a very strong influence on the government in Iraq. And I think the period of time that we really need to focus on most of all is the Ottoman era for Iraq, um, which, of course, lasted four centuries. There was some push and pull between the Ottoman forces and forces that were uh, present in modern day Iran at the time. But overall, Iraq was a very important part of uh, the Ottoman Empire. Um, and Iraq was divided into three uh, states or what are called vilayets. There was Mosul province. Uh, there was Baghdad province and there was Basra province. And you still see today that there is a distinct difference between these areas and there are unique identities of each population. And I think this is where it merits mentioning that Iraq was and remains a very ethnically diverse country. The Iraq is a borderland between the Ottomans and the Safavids. And that is what created a lot of the uh, sectarian dimensions of modern day Iraq, with southern Iraq being closer to Persia, closer to the Safavids, having more of that... Shia influence, and then the northern Mosul, Baghdad parts closer to Turkey, more under their control, ending up. That's where that sectarian divide begins to formulate, because before that, the Abbasids were Shia, and Shia and Sunni communities kind of intermingled. But after that Safavid-Ottoman competition over that border province, that's where the sectarian dynamics started to kick in, because you were more likely to end up with greater trade links and greater political influence with nearby Persia if you were in the south and more likely to end up with tra greater trade links and greater political influence uh, with Turkey if you were in the north. And that, that helps shape those those sectarian dimensions. And 
we still see today that Turkey has a remarkable amount of a feeling of ownership and, and almost an entitlement to some of the politics and, and trade that happens in northern Iraq specifically. Turkey it has these deep historical connections to some communities in northern Iraq. Um, and you still see Turkey is a critical trading partner to the Kurdish regional government in northern Iraq, which is part of the overall federal government of Iraq, but operates as a semi-autonomous region. And so Turkey has maintained a lot of these ties that really come from that Ottoman history. Mm. And the same can be said for Kuwait and Iran, which squeeze that that southern Shiite majority, southern portion of Iraq. And one of those things that gives us an illustration of how the Turks retain influence in northern Iraq to this day is the idea of the ethnic Turkmen, who are a small minority in Iraq, but many people think Iraq is made up of just Arabs, and the Arabs are divided between Sunni and Shia, and there might be a thought that there's the Kurds in there as well, but there's a, a mosaic of small minorities that are a legacy of this borderland experience. So you've got these Yazidis and Turkmen and um, Assyrian Christians, all of these little legacies of Roman and uh Mongol and Turkish influence from centuries past. And the Turkmen are one of the the groups that the Turks lean on as a very small minority to exert influence in places like the KRG or in northern Iraq as, as a connection to their former empire of people who came out of there from Central Asia uh, almost a thousand years ago and continue to have an ethnic linkage with uh, Turkey to this day. Right. So we have this mosaic of different communities and uh, different ethnic uh, populations throughout the country. And then you have World War I, which really changes the game for not just Iraq, but all of these countries in the Middle East that were former Ottoman territories. There we start to see something different. And right, and during World War I, is, that's the first of three British invasions of Iraq in the 20th and 21st centuries. And this first invasion of Iraq is the British trying to break off what they see as an, a relatively easy territory to take from their enemy, the Ottoman Empire, as they fight the Central Powers. And at the end of the war, Iraq ends up in the British sphere of influence. But the idea of Iraq of a, as a country is a new idea. And the British are in the twilight of their imperial era. They realize that their empire is not going to last forever. They and the French come together in the Sykes-Picot Agreement and invent this thing called a mandate, which is supposed to be an independent country eventually. But when it becomes an independent country, it's designed so that its, its political leadership is more or less under the permanent influence of the country that set it up. So they set up the mandate of Iraq and they bring in a monarchy and they bring in tribal groups to run uh, these three distinct Ottoman villiers as a single kingdom of Iraq. And they bring in the Hashemites who also run Jordan to this day to try to set up this mandate that is supposed to be under their permanent influence. And this begins the story of Iraq trying to pick the right partners or be picked by the right partners to maintain its independence. Because when the British come into the region, this is the first time that an extra-regional power has entered Mesopotamia since the Romans, Alexander the Great. Like it's been thousands of years. The Mongols would be another qualifier. It's been hundreds of years since an extra-regional power came into Iraq, and the British come in and they set up an independent state, and Iraqis understand that without that extra-regional power there to prop them up, they will be back under the influence of Turkey or Iran, as they historically have been. And the Hashemites are the first ones who have to face this. And unfortunately, they make a few bad calls, including in 1941, where one of their prime ministers starts to get a little bit too close to the Axis powers and provokes the second invasion of Iraq by Great Britain, the Anglo-Iraqi War of 1941 is a very short campaign, but it's designed to prevent the, the, the Nazis and the Italians from getting access to the Iraqi oil fields. Um, that is the first major 
theme that we've seen within Iraqi history in the 20th century of picking the wrong partner at the wrong moment. The Iraqis are hoping they can leverage Axis friendship to get out from underneath British influence. Instead, they provoke a British invasion. Um, and we see this recur again and again. And the next time this happens is after the 1958 revolution in which the Hashemite monarchy is overthrown and the entire royal family is machine gunned by these revolutionaries. And these revolutionaries under Abdul Karim Qasam decide that they are going to lean towards the Soviet Union, who is anti-British. And they hope again that with some Soviet aid, they'll be able to prop up an independent Iraq. Well, that's a mistake as well, because the Soviets don't actually come riding into the rescue. They're not in a position in the 1950s to exert that relationship and influence that relationship as much as they like. And a few years later, Qassam ends up being overthrown in his own revolution by Iraqi nationalists under the Ba'ath Party, and the Ba'ath Party that produces Saddam Hussein and uh, leads us to the 2003 war. So and we- let's talk a little bit about the Ba'ath Party, because it mm-hmm. is this is something that really plugs Iraq into a broader story that was happening in the region at the time because we have the Ba'ath Party is sort of a, especially at the time, was embracing this idea of pan-Arabism as well as socialism, which helps us understand why they were reaching out to the Soviet Union at the time. Pan-Arabism was this idea that was sort of sweeping the region that we don't need any of these outside powers. We have the power in all these different Arab states in the region. If we all come together, we have a unified Arab identity that's going to propel us forward and make us powerful. And in in some ways, this idea is is still very much around. But at the time in, in the 50s, 60s, and, and even some in the 70s, this was a really powerful idea and even brought together Egypt and Syria into one country for a brief period of time and propelled figures like Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt into a really famous political position. And so the Ba'ath Party was 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 a really powerful entity in Iraq that was sort of propagating some of these ideas. And that ideology was a pretty decent political panacea for what we've discussed of this mosaic of humanity of many, many different ethnic groups as a legacy of it being an imperial borderland. And it allowed for that divide between Sunnis and Shia to be overcome through Iraqi nationalism, pan-Arab nationalism. And the Ba'ath Party is the first political party in Iraq's 20th century history that starts to begin the process of truly building an Iraqi nation state, of uniting this disparate landscape into a single identity. And the Ba'ath Party has that same challenge as before, which is that it has a powerful Turkey and a powerful Iran, both of whom have historically tussled over it, and they need to fend those off. And they're looking for relationships beyond the region in order to prop themselves up. And they play around with the idea of the Soviet Union. They play around with the idea of the United States. And particularly, they find both the United States and the Soviet Union are most amenable to Iraq in the 1970s as the superpower competition heats up in the Middle East, and both powers are looking for those middle powers to try to pull off into their camps. Iraq is one of those middle powers that is able to play off U.S. and Soviet rivalry to its own benefit. And for a time there, uh, Iraq is one of the richest, most highly developed Arab countries in the region in the 1970s, partially because it plays off this the, this rivalry, partially because it's enjoying a high oil prices and it's developing its economy. And then the 1979 revolution in Iran happens. And this creates a crisis within Iraq in which an assertive Iran has an ideology which believes that Iraq should belong within its sphere of influence. And the Ba'ath Party under Saddam Hussein pretty skillfully uses this Iranian threat to build even closer relationships with the United States and the Soviet Union. And more importantly, to build up the idea of a pan-sectarian Iraqi identity. 
And when the Iran-Iraq war begins, and it's a brutal war for eight years, 100,000 people dead on both sides, and he is able to conscript Shia Iraqis into his army and they remain loyal all the way through the conflict in part because he is using Iraqi nationalism that increasingly ties to him. So he's building a bridge between the monarchy, which everything is tied to the personality of the king, and the modern pan-Arabism in which everything's tied to their Arab identity, and he's fusing it into himself, and he uses this to create a very effective war machine that is able to hold off a much stronger, much larger power of Iran for eight long years. And he leverages that into two key relationships with the Soviet Union and the United States, who are both in agreement that Iran's revolution is a threat to their interests as well. We'll get back to our conversation on the geopolitics of Iraq in just one moment. But this intersection of the history, geography, and political challenges facing nations informs all of our analysis at Stratfor Worldview. It drives our methodology and each assessment or forecast we produce to help you make sense of an increasingly complex world. We even have dedicated pages where all of our work on Iraq or any other country you're interested in is collected in one place. We'll include a link to the Iraq page in the show notes. And if you're not already a Stratfor Worldview member, you can register for free, limited access, or learn more about individual, team, and enterprise subscriptions at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. Now, back to our conversation on the geopolitics of Iraq with Stratfor's Emily Hawthorne and Ryan Ball. That then leads to our third time that the Iraqi government has chosen poorly in regards to its geopolitical decisions in the 20th century, and that's Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait in 1991. And this is him misreading the geopolitical situation. He believes the United States won't do anything if he moves on Kuwait to deal with a debt crisis. Uh, he believes the Soviet Union will protect him from the United States when the United States threatens to retaliate. He's wrong on both fronts, and it creates an animosity with the United States that Iraq never really recovers from while Saddam Hussein is in charge. And that leads us to 2003, which is an extension of that 1991 rivalry that began because of Saddam's misreading of the geopolitical map. And the U.S. invasion comes and goes. And that ends Saddam Hussein's rule, but it also shatters the idea of Iraqi nationalism as embodied by Saddam and leaves us in a vacuum. So let's talk a little bit about what happened after 2003 and after Operation Iraqi Freedom and the unseating of Saddam Hussein, uh, because it really did something dramatic to the Iraqi political uh, sphere. Uh, of course, this event, for many reasons that we won't go into, was cataclysmic in, in changing the Iraqi landscape and has had a lot of influence on its security sector, its economy. We could talk for days about what 2003 means to modern Iraq today. But in terms of its political identity, what it did was it removed Saddam Hussein's legacy of giving Sunni Arabs, which represent a minority in Iraq, giving them really the preferential roles in government. And there was significant uh, discrimination of other minorities and uh, the Shiite majority in the country. So in 2003, Saddam Hussein is removed and there is sort of an open vacuum and a flip-flop of where Shiite Arabs feel finally like there is some equality for them to access certain positions in, in government and in the economy. This is good in in some ways. Um, it also leads to other opportunities for politicians, Shiite politicians, to take advantage of the situation, um, which we have seen happen time and again since 2003. Also from 2003, we can talk about 
how there have been multiple issues with insurgency in Iraq. The intrasectarian conflict has waxed and waned throughout the years. And we should also talk about how the Iraqi Kurds, who were really pushed down and, and discriminated against under Saddam Hussein in really violent ways, were able to really embrace, with American help, uh, the idea of a semi-autonomous government for themselves. So these are just some of the ways in which 2003 really became a watershed moment for Iraq and has led to greater instability in many ways. And 2003 was that year that shattered the question, the, the answer of who's an Iraqi used to be answered by Saddam. After 2003, there is nobody to answer that. And there's a scrambling of elites in, on different levels, sectarian, tribal, regional, uh, class, all who have their own answers, many of which the answer usually just benefits themselves. And the United States in, in its occupation doesn't exactly help with this because it fundamentally misreads how Iraqi politics works. And it takes – it has a long learning curve as it's setting up a government there before it's able to take in all of these competing interests and allow that question to be answered in a way that isn't extremely violent or extremely corrupt or extremely dysfunctional. And it's still something that Iraqis struggle with today of who is an Iraqi, who deserves to be in charge, who deserves to have the lion's share of the resources, or how do we distribute these resources equitably, or should we even distribute these resources equitably, or have the events of the past caused so much hardship that certain communities deserve more than others. And all of those questions continue to swirl around. Even as we're seeing the Iraqi government trying to be formed today, we see these factions jostling with one another, trying to answer that question, who's truly Iraqi? Who truly deserves the benefits of, uh, of their still large natural resource base? Who deserves to be the one who, who shepherds them into their new type of identity? You mentioned the resource pool. So let's talk a little bit about how Iraq is very unique with respect to the resource pool that it has. Iraq is one of the most oil-rich countries in the world in terms of, of known reserves. And it really absolutely cannot be understated how important oil is to the Iraqi economy. Now, anyone who's really looked at any of the Middle Eastern states that are dependent on oil knows that a dependence on oil can lead to some stagnation in your economy in other ways. Iraq really is the epitome of a patronage state, a welfare state that develops off of one source of revenue. This can lead to a significant imbalance in the economy. It can lead to uh, the government using oil wealth to uh, reward certain people, certain groups, certain individuals, certain politicians. And unfortunately for Iraq, this has been the case. Post-2003, this period of time, it has not made it any better, even though anti-corruption is a phrase that you hear constantly in Iraqi politics. Um, so in Iraq today, we have a very large uh, bureaucracy, a lot of public sector jobs, and the government tries feebly to promote the private sector, um, to promote other sectors that are not related to the oil and gas industry. But it's very difficult in Iraq um, when they're dealing with a lot of other issues, including the security issues that really became worse um, after 2003, including, of course, the Islamic State militant group. And there are other violent um, armed groups in Iraq as well that compromise Iraq's security. So the government is spending really an incredible amount of money training its security forces. And the United States and the UK and other countries have spent a lot of money trying to stabilize Iraq. Um, but it's an enduring challenge, of course. But this economy and just this intense dependence on oil and the way that the government distributes oil revenue, it unfortunately has become part of the imbalance that um, has propagated a lot of the sectarian issues in the country. And we've seen this in all the latest 
instances of unrest in the country, things that have been in the headlines just over the last several months. You have the uh, southern sector of the country um, centered around the major city of Basra. And that province, Basra province, is responsible for 70% roughly of Iraq's oil. Now, the oil sector is very important to the economy, but it really only employs a very small percentage of the population. So you have a very wealthy country in terms of its resources, but it doesn't translate into jobs for Iraqis. And this is turning into more and more uh, a really big issue for the government to try and solve. And creating more public sector jobs doesn't solve the issue. It just makes the government's bill even uh, larger. So this is this is one of the major issues for Iraq to solve. And right now, its way of solving it is just to ask for more money from outside powers and to try and keep domestic unrest from boiling over. And when we're talking about corruption and the, the oil economy, we've got two strands that are going against Iraq. Uh, the first is a historical legacy of generational corruption going all the way back to the Ottoman Empire. You have in the Ottoman system, in a monarchy, you have the Lord distributing resources. They take the resources in and they distribute them to their loyalists. That was something that was true 100 years ago. And then under the monarchy with the Hashemites, it remained true. Under the Baathists, it was modified so that that loyalty wasn't based on royal families, but on political litmus tests. And that remained true. So when the Americans came in in 2003, Iraqis were used to having their resources hoarded by a certain set of leaders and then distributed to their loyalists. And that's been part of the struggle is that that is an entrenched habit politically amongst Iraq's government that's very hard to overcome, that generationally takes a great deal of time for that habits to be worn out of people and for people to expect more. Moreover, when you talk about oil, it is not a productive way of having a – as you were referring to with the jobs, it doesn't employ that many people. It's product, it, it isn't exactly something that causes people to produce things. They simply extract the resource out of the ground, sell it on the open market, and then distribute the cash. And it doesn't use enough manpower to really suck up this, this youth unemployment that, uh, that Iraq struggles with. And so you have two – competing problems that are just compounding on one another. On the one hand, you have a set of political leaders who are expected to distribute resources to their supporters, and their supporters are expected to their job is to be loyal to their leaders. On the other hand, you also have a primary industry that doesn't create that many jobs in the course of doing that, and that simply compounds and adds on to many of Iraq's economic problems. And Iraq wants to be more of an entrepreneurial environment. It wants to be more of a creative uh, economic environment. But it struggles to create the incentives to get people into those kinds of positions and to keep them there and for them to succeed there. This is where we arrive back at that question of we have this weak economic picture. We have a weak security picture in the country. And you have a lot of external partners and countries neighboring Iraq that are concerned about both of those things and also see ways to try and take advantage of those. And so you have Iran, which especially since 2003 – has been a very important patron to a lot of the Shiite political groups in the country, not all of them, but many of them, and has become a really critical security partner and has uh, become well known for supporting, funding and training Shiite militias in the country that just over the last couple of years, because of the Islamic State threat, have been fully incorporated into the country's official security forces. And that's really formalized Iran's importance to Iraq through that uh, security relationship. You also have the Arab Gulf states who, if we just look at one of our major conflicts in the Middle East, it's this cold war between Iran and some of those Arab Gulf states. Those Arab Gulf states, especially the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, 
they want to increase the amount of influence that they have um, in Iraq's economy and in Iraq's security sector as well. Uh, they're always looking for ways that they can try and, and fund something or increase their political influence. And then, of course, you have Turkey. Um, and Turkey has established security and economic relationships. It does not want to let any of those dissolve or it doesn't want to see its influence weaken, especially because it's engaged in its own conflicts with Saudi Arabia and with Iran, um, really a, a struggle for rivalry and competition in the Middle East. And so Iraq, unfortunately, becomes sort of a, a zone for a tug of war for influence in the greater Middle East. And it puts it back into its its traditional position as a borderland. And this time, the primary borderland is between Saudi Arabia and Iran. But we see the potential for Turkey to take a, a greater role in reestablishing its influence as trying to control this borderland as well. And we've got this question as we go forward, like, can Iraq survive? Is Iraq a viable state? This comes up from time to time during a crisis, uh, during the Islamic State invasion in 2014, during the Kurdish referendum last year, and before that, when people thought, perhaps we should just break this country up under the United States occupation into three different countries. And many Iraqis don't want to break their country out. They want to maintain the cohesion of the country. But it's a struggle to balance these three different regions and the sub-regions within them from the outside forces that take advantage of those fractures and of that breaking up. And whether or not Iraq can continue on in its current shape. I mean, if we were going to see Iraq collapse, we've had a couple of really good opportunities. The Islamic State invasion is probably the biggest one where we really, we could have seen Iraq fall apart there, and we didn't. And the Kurdish referendum last year was a chance for a long-held splinter region to break away, and it didn't. And so there's a resilience to mm -hmm. this country. There's a resilience to what many have referred to as an artificial European creation. But at this point, there is such a thing as Iraqi identity. There are such a thing as Iraqi nationalists and people who who are, have a stake in seeing the survival of this place. And so their continued challenge is, as it has been for the past century, picking the right partners in the outside world, making sure that their neighbors don't have too much influence over them, and not ending up becoming a battleground between these proxy powers. And that, that is a tall ask for any country, let alone one like Iraq that has gone through many of the, the historical experiences that have, have set it back in so many different ways over the past century. Thanks for joining us for our conversation on the geopolitics of Iraq with Stratford Middle East and North Africa analysts Emily Hawthorne and Ryan Boll. If you'd like to learn more about how Iraq's history and geography are shaping its present and future today, we'll include links to our related analysis at Stratford Worldview, along with a link to a page where all of our work on Iraq is collected in one place. If you're not already a Worldview member, you can learn more about individual, team and enterprise access at worldview.stratford.com slash subscribe. Or you can even register for free, limited access to explore more of our work. And if you have a moment, we'd love to hear from you as well. Please take a moment to leave a review on the Stratford podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. We really appreciate your feedback. Or if you have a question or even an idea for a future episode of the podcast, you can email us at podcast at stratford.com. And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis and forecasting that reveal the underlying significance and future implications of emerging world events, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Stratford.